Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today we have A. Michael Knoll, who would be well known to anyone studying the origins of virtual interaction. He had a long and storied career at Bell Labs during its heyday. The number of technologies we take for granted today that originate from Bell Labs is staggering, and it includes everything from digital speech processing to transistors. I had the privilege of visiting their Murray Hill, New Jersey campus a few years ago, and it still has that magical feeling. They even have an apple tree grown from the clipping of the tree that bore the apple that hit Newton in the head and started Newtonian mechanics. They also have an amazing anechoic chamber. You can walk in there and hear perfect silence, which is much more difficult to imagine than you would first assume until you experience it firsthand. They have so many cool things. But anyway, what triggered my reaching out to Mike is reading a patent he's named on, which lays out a multimodal interactive system for virtual experience. And it was published and granted all the way back in the early 1970s. His work also appeared in the short documentary that I came across online, and you can watch it too. It's called The Incredible Machine. And part of what that video is about is the use of computers to make art. This was a radical idea back then. And Mike is credited with being one of the first people to use computers to create art. Mike also spent some time in Washington, D.C. as a technical advisor to the office of the president. And so he shares some interesting stories about that. One of the things I was most interested in understanding from Mike is, why does he think Bell Labs was able to do what it did? Is there a magic formula that we can learn? Can we use the model of Bell Labs to organize today's innovations programs and projects? Well, here are some of the reasons that Mike submits that he thinks made a difference. Bell Labs had a broad but specific mission. Both of those words are key. It was broad, so it allowed research to go in many different directions, and yet it was specific. Specifically, it was to assure the future of telecommunication in the United States. So that, combined with stable funding, because the Bell system was a monopoly, meant that research didn't have to solve practical problems, and yet researchers were always close to practical problems. So that virtuous cycle between R and D was very present. Another reason that Mike talks about, and this is the least surprising thing in the world, is that it comes down to people. But the way that Bell Labs handled its people is maybe different from the way that many organizations do today. So hiring practices were stringent. People were subjected to intense scrutiny and criticism during the hiring process. And that expectation for excellence actually carried over to the work day to day. Researchers were expected to subject their research constantly to the input and the criticism of their peers and were expected to get better on an ongoing basis. People in management were usually the best of the best in terms of research. So you actually had a management stratum that was technologically literate and in fact very close to the work itself. And this, Mike, contrasts to the university research world, which I should mention, Mike was the dean of the Annenberg School of Communication at USC for a time. So he saw that firsthand. So because Mike has had this long perspective, I asked at the end of the discussion what advice he would give to people who want to wrap their heads around the modern world of rapidly evolving high technology. His response was a bit unexpected to me, but upon reflection, it's right on. Stick around to the end to hear more about that. Here we go. A. Michael Knoll. Everything is okay. You can see me, enough lighting, everything. I can see you. I can hear you. Everything is great. You can hear everything's fine. That can't be. Nothing's going to work. 
Give us an introduction to you. Well, what we're going to talk about today is, I think, an interesting journey. The journey of me, Mike Knoll, at Bell Laboratories when I had an assignment and worked in the research division. It started during the summer of 1962. And while there, during the summer of 1962, due to somebody's programming glitch, I got the idea of deliberately using a digital computer and programming it to produce visual art. And wrote about that at Bell Laboratories and described it and actually programmed the computer to do all sorts of visual art things, like some of which you can see here. Yeah. So they're like geometric graphics. They're geometric. Nowadays, that's called algorithmic art. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have used that term back then. Back then, we would call it digital computer art. The word digital in front of computer, because in the early 60s, a lot of computers were still analog. Mm -hmm. So it was a distinction between the two. Because of a childhood interest in these stereo viewers, these things you would look at and see separate left and right eye images, true view, and these other stereoscopic things that they had, the idea occurred to me to program separate images, left and right eye, mostly of three-dimensional data. Mm-hmm. So we could see it in true three dimensions. And from that, I then progressed into doing three-dimensional computer animation where the left and right eye images would be calculated by the computer. That could be data that was changing over time. Mm -hmm. I then also took that technique and moved it into the art world and did a three-dimensional computer-generated ballet, did three-dimensional projections of a four-dimensional hypercube rotating in four-dimensional space. And again, you could look at these 3D movies wearing 3D spectacles or cross-eyed, whatever technique you happen to use. And there are these videos online in AT&T archive website. I've seen some of them. One of them was a rotating graphic of text and three-dimensional text. And I think you're credited with possibly creating the first three-dimensional text animation. Well, I started doing 3D text, but it was two-dimensional projections of four-dimensional words, words placed in a four-dimensional space, the 3D and then the 2D, and did that for some title sequencing. That was used to do the title sequencing for an AT&T movie called Incredible Machine, which was, I think, done around 1968, and also used for a TV show back then called The Unexplained that Arthur C. Clarke and Walt DeFaria worked on. But once you start working with 3D, now you start working also with real-time computer graphics, which we were doing at Bell Labs. Uh, My boss, Peter Denish, had his own computer, which he was using for speech analysis, speech synthesis, investigations, and we had a display. So the idea was now to do stereoscopic real-time, and now you need 3D input. How do you get it in? Mm -hmm. A 3D joystick. Well, back then, we might have had a light pen. We had tablets, little knobs to turn, things of that variety. What I wanted was something you could hold on to and move around in a three-dimensional space and have separate X, Y, Z, rectangular coordinate information go into the computer, then that could be then used and plotted for left and right eye images so you could see 3D things. Mm -hmm. So that got designed, and we built them. There's a journal article 
in the SID journal published in 1972, describes some of the things we built. You hold on to this little thing and you can move it around in a, about a one cubic foot space and X, Y, Z coordinates would go off into the computer. Mm -hmm. And then we built a number of 3D displays. One technique, obviously, is you put left and right images on, and then look at them cross-eyed, learn to cross your eyes, hold your finger in front of you as techniques that help. Yeah. We also had a prism adapter that would slip over the display tube and the prism would handle separating the left and right eyes for you. And we also had two little cathode ray tubes that were placed in a stereo viewer too. So it was stereo viewer with teeny weeny little cathode ray tubes for each eye. That always made me nervous because I didn't like those high voltages being that close to the head. Yeah. That got done. All this was being done in the late 60s. Then something interesting happened. A person from the National Film Board of Canada, Maurice Constant, came down to visit Bell Labs and talk. And I remember being in the conference room listening to him. Maurice had a lot of ideas, was an idea person. And he says, wouldn't it be great in order to communicate with a computer, you could reach into some box with your hands and actually feel something, almost like a modeling clay that you then could form and all. Mm. But it wasn't really there. The word we'd use today would be virtual. Mm -hmm. And he said that. And I said, don't. The image that I instantly had was to take the 3D input device and somehow put motors on it that would lock at appropriate times and make you think you had bumped into something. So you now could feel things which were only in the program of the computer. Mm -hmm. And this was haptics, although you didn't have that word. You called it what? Word haptic did not exist back then. Yeah. So I called this force feedback. Force feedback. The computer was feeding back force to you based upon your position. Uh, of course, Huxley's term feelies come to mind too. So this was the beginning of that. So went off and designed and built that device, which ended up being my dissertation, mm -hmm. doctoral dissertation at the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn. That was granted in June of 1971. The device was a huge mechanical design project building this thing. This was a tricky thing to build. There are a lot of electronics involved in it in terms of how it was being controlled by the computer. There was issues of how you handle feedback and control theory. There's a lot of problems and all. Sure. It also was a dangerous thing, too, because if something went wrong with the motors on this and your hand was in the way, this thing could slam into you and hurt you. So there was a little sphere at the top of the joystick that you held onto, and your two fingers had to be across the two halves of that sphere in order for the fields on the motors to be energized. Mm. Otherwise, the thing would just die. Oh. So it was safety. Right. So that thing got constructed, and amazingly, it worked. You could hold on to it, move around, and feel as if you were bumping into a solid object or a spongy object, depending upon how you wanted to program it. Could be a surface. Back then, depicting a surface visually on a computer was always a challenge because there's just so much to calculate. Mm -hmm. But if you were doing it in terms of this feely device, there was only one point, the point where you were touching the surface that had to be calculated. Right, right. So now you could slide along. It was almost as if you were in a dark room and somebody gave you something to hold on to. And you could hold on to it and slide your finger over it and get a sense for what that surface was like, the curvature, things of that variety. Ultimately, if I had continued the work, I thought of something you could put your hand 
into, mm -hmm. and then you'd have something for your fingers. The idea here was that it actually would have mass and weight. Mm -hmm. I didn't want something you just held up in the air. This thing was contained by what it was holding onto, the joystick and the motors, so it actually could have weight and sense to it and push back on you. Mm -hmm. Back then, people were also talking about head-mounted displays. Mm -hmm. A fellow named Hugh Upton at Bell Helicopter had developed helmet-mounted stereoscopic displays with half-silvered mirrors. I think the practical application for Bell Helicopter was 3D cameras under a helicopter. So if you were landing a helicopter, you could see in three dimensions what you were coming down on. Uh-huh, right. That makes sense. So those were available and being talked about. So it occurred to me if I had one of those and the Feely device, we could in essence see the real world, superimpose some object on it that you then could hold onto and feel it would have mass and things of this variety. We didn't do that, hmm. but that idea occurred. Bell Laboratories patent people got interested in this and applied for a patent. That was applied for, I think, back in June of 71, something in that time frame, and a few years later was issued. The patent is of interest because in it, it discloses the basic idea of a computer, a stereoscopic display, output, input being a position data generator, and that's three-dimensional data, X, Y, Z, and forces coming back to tactile terminal unit, computer, and stereoscopic display. That's pretty broad. Yeah. And that patent was granted back then. All of this then got published, because we like to publish, in addition to the doctoral dissertation, the Society for Information Display Journal. There was no tactile, there was no haptic society. There was no IEEE computer society, SIGGRAPH. None of that existed mm -hmm. back then. So Society for Information Display, their journal, published the piece about the tactile device back then. That was published 1972. So there's that paper describing that in, in great detail. Along with further thoughts, one possibility I was suggesting was an age to the handicap, that if you were blind, if you're blind, computer graphics means nothing. Mm -hmm. But if you could feel things, suddenly graphics become sensible. Mm -hmm. So there's a potential aid for the handicapped I also thought about using the tactile thing with telecommunications so that you could feel things over great distance. You might be able to feel what a piece of cloth felt like or some something you were considering that was being manufactured overseas and you want to feel it here. Mm -hmm. So those ideas too occurred. Another extension of this work was a few years later when I was working in the area of teleconferencing and I suggested the idea of a teleconferencing unit in which you would have a head-mounted 3D display, mm -hmm. and at the remote location would be the two 3D cameras on some gimbal thing. So when you moved your head, the gimbal thing would turn one way or the other, so that it would almost feel as if somebody had <laughs> taken off your head and teleported it to the distance so that you'd be a participant in that meeting as if your head was physically there. And, of course, two-way audio, too. That was a piece that appeared in an IEEE journal was called Teleportation Through Communication, and that was in 1976. Exciting place. I mean, what does this have to do with Bell Labs? What well, has to do with telecommunication, which is what Bell Labs' mission was. Right. Bell Labs' mission back then was to assure the future of telecommunication in the United States. Very broad, very definite. Mm -hmm. 
Bell Laboratories was funded by AT&T, which in effect was a monopoly. So stable, secure funding. The ability for management to take chances, to take risk, to do something new, go down a new direction. Not forever. If you went down some crazy new path and spent years down there mumbling around in the pitches of darkness with nothing ever coming forth, management after a while would say, "Uh, we think it's time that you withdrew from that zone and tried something new. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't uh, freedom to just do crazy things forever. But a lot of exciting work went on back then in what was a very unique research facility, a very unique development facility, and resulted in our world today, which has come so much together as a result of telecommunication, as a result of a lot of the work that went on at Bell Laboratories in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, we owe so much to Bell Labs. Part of what I did to prepare to talk to you was I I read your book. You sent me a book that you wrote, a manuscript, and it was a description of Bell Labs and your experience there. You talked a little bit about why you think Bell Labs was so successful. One thing you already said here was that it was a broad but specific mission. Yes. Mission is very important and broad and specific. There was not an emphasis on short-term profitability, which you see today. Mm. None of that type of thing. It was also the research people were close to the real-world problems of the Bell system and the operation of the telephone system. So they knew of those practical problems. They weren't trying to solve practical problems. Researchers don't do well when put on practical problems. But you were near enough to that that those practical problems would motivate. Mm -hmm. There was some sense of realism and reality. Unlike university research, where proposals have to be written, probably more emphasis and work goes into the writing of the proposal than the actual conduct of the research. And that's also a problem, I think. And uh, university research is not near the real world. And uh, the, the real mission of the university is education. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a, it's a different situation. Mm-hmm. But back then in the 50s and the 60s, you know, New Jersey was a great research state, was a great innovation state. Yeah. Edison started it with his facility in West Orange, his laboratory there. RCA, Sarnoff, had his laboratory down in Princeton. IT&T had a laboratory in New Jersey, too. Mm-hmm. In support of that, there are all sorts of little factories and little workshops to do mechanical stuff, electrical stuff, drafting stuff, modeling stuff. And at Bell Laboratories, we, of course, had our own drafting department. We had our own machinists. We had our own chemists. We had our own glass blowers. All those kinds of resources were there at Bell Laboratories. It was like Silicon Valley before Silicon Valley. It was the big innovation center for the United States. Yes, indeed. And you have to remember, too, Silicon Valley, the silicon in Silicon Valley came from the transistor. And that, of course, was Shockley, who was at Bell Laboratories and then ended up in California, bringing with him the transistor and the silicon, which then became the term Silicon Valley. So after you started at Bell Labs, you wrote your thesis on force feedback. And then you moved to Washington. Is that right? It was an interesting story there, too. Uh, I can remember the day I was in my office at Bell Labs. The phone rang, and it was the vice president of research, William O. Baker, Dr. Baker, on the phone, directly calling me and bypassing a whole chain of management, Mm. to which he said, Michael, something like, periodically, some of our people go to Washington. I was wondering what would happen if that kind of opportunity was presented to you. 
pause. Well, this wasn't an answer we'd say, well, let me think about it. <laughs> want an answer then. Right. And I had just sort of finished my research project, was soon about to be granted my doctorate, and I didn't know what to say, what to do, other than to mumble, well, I would consider it my duty to the country indeed to serve and to go off and do that. To which he said, I thought that's what you would say. In a few days, you'll hear from the executive officer of the president, from Dr. David, who was then science advisor to President Nixon. And then he hung up. <laughs> and a few days later, the phone rang, and it was Dr. David's secretary, Mary Ann Sembrot, who was calling to schedule me to take a visit down to D.C. and meet with them in their office, which I did. And that resulted in me working for them down that office for two years, which was the Office of Science and Technology, which was part of the Executive Office of the President of the United States. And suddenly you're in Washington bureaucracy land. How was that contrasted? Somebody who had just finished a doctorate, who had been working research on computer graphics, speech analysis, speech synthesis, computer stuff, all sorts of things, and just suddenly dropped this young kid, plop, into D.C., in the executive office of the president, in the old executive office building, one of the most magnificent buildings in D.C., uh, I was in over my head something awful and knew it and frightened. I remember I would sneak into the building so nobody would even see me going in there. I was afraid uh, the vice president of the United States had his office on the same floor as mine. I was scared to death I might bump into him and wouldn't know what to say. It was a little bit frightful. What were you working on there? Uh, my area of responsibility was computer security and privacy issues. Now, what do you do? Uh, the executive office of the president doesn't have any functional thing. It's a consulting type office as part of this executive office of the president, which is thousands of people. The office of management and budget is the most famous part of that. Uh, Council of Economic Advisors, National Security Council, NSC, Henry Kissinger. These are all part of that executive office of the president. Mm -hmm. I got involved with the agencies that were trying to figure out what can be exported to the Soviets. And obviously, the Defense Department would show up at these meetings and say, nothing. If you give them an abacus, that will significantly increase their computing power. Don't even export an abacus to them. Then there'd be people who'd show up from the Commerce Department, and they would say, well, this would be good, though, for American industry to sell these computers to them. Then there'd be State Department people who'd be thinking of all of those policy issues and diplomacy and everything that they worry about, and what are we going to get in read? So it was those kinds of things at those meetings. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the people trying to decide this want to know, well, what does the executive office of the president think about this, which would then become... Michael, what do you think of this? Which is the way it works in Washington. Everything is blurry. Everything is gray. Nothing is black. Nothing is white. It's blurry. So the question is, how do you now take that blurry zone and which way do you try to push it one way or the other? Henry Kissinger was doing everything he could to open up the Soviet Union, to break through the boundaries, more person-to-person -person contact. Mm -hmm. That gives you a sense of that overall grand scheme at the top, all right? So later on, Ed David went to the Soviets along with Nixon and signed some agreements. And part of there was a science agreement to have a cooperative science technology work going on. Mm -hmm. And again, the idea was to get American scientists 
working with Soviet scientists, that way opening up their country so more people there see what the differences really are. And as part of that, I got the job to be co-chair of a committee that was looking at the use of computers and management. All right, so there's some Soviets on that committee, some of their people, management people, computer people, and some similar on the U.S. side. And me and the Soviet fellow had to sign the agreement and work that out and all. So I was negotiating directly with Soviets, yes. I know what it's like to negotiate the specifics with the Soviets. It's very difficult because they come in and they have their agenda, which was not the agenda that was agreed upon earlier by my boss and their people. Right. So now they're trying to twist it the direction they want to go. That, again, was as in over my head. The State Department doesn't really help you because State Department doesn't determine the policy. They just implement it. So, you know, I knew what the policy was because I knew what Kissinger was up to. Mm. So I knew what they wanted to see happen. So the issue is how do you do that? State Department worries more about if you have a, a state dinner, who sits where, who gets to talk first, how long. Those are the you know, diplomacy, that kind of stuff is what they're into. Right. And so it become a little bit, a little bit tricky, tricky things. There's also was issues obviously having to do with the intelligence community too. You know, you don't want to give away our secrets to the Soviets either. So the question becomes very important. What is their level of technology? Mm-hmm. What is their state of computer technology? How good is it? Because you want to know that. You want to know who's ahead and in what ways. So who's looking for what? So there's those issues too. And then when you get into computer security, clearly the White House has no responsibilities for that. The, the people back then who worried about computer security was the National Security Agency, NSA. Mm-hmm. So in my work in that area, I was obviously working very closely with them. Privacy, well, that's a social issue. That's a bigger one back then, you know, uh, and, and still the same issues in privacy are around today that were around back then, the same issues. How do you handle this? An awful lot of people give an awful lot of personal information to various people, but that's because they get better services for them, easier services as a result of what they've allowed to be disclosed. Yeah. So you were in Washington and you were there for, I think, two years. Is that right? Two years. Mm-hmm. Nixon got reelected. Uh, our office had somehow or other over the years had angered the White House. Mm. So the president's people were ready to drop the hatchet on top of our office and get rid of the science advisor and get rid of our office. So we were a ripe one for that. Hmm. And that's what happened. We were eliminated. I see. And then you went back to Bell Labs. I went back to Bell Labs mm-hmm. and struggled. And struggled. Yeah. Yes, you hung around Washington involved with the issues I was being involved with. And the people I was involved with trying to go back to Bell Labs and continue research was not exactly right for me in terms of my mind, nor was it right for the company. I should have been brought into AT&T in the policy zone of AT&T and worried about the belt system, the possibility of a breakup and things of that variety. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen, unfortunately. The person who could have made it happen had a battle within AT&T and lost. So the person who might have been the one to hire me to do that, Harvey McMains, was no longer in a position to do that. Mm. So I went back to Bell Labs, but now I had very strong views that the Bell system indeed needed to be broken up. 
I also realized Bell Laboratories had changed in the two years I was gone. It was no longer the same place. It was the freedom, the ability to explore was now gone. Things had already started to deteriorate. It takes a long time for big ships to sink. It takes a long time. They're taking on water, but they don't go down quick. They usually go down very slow, but steadily. You know, in the mid-80s, finally, the Bell system did break up. It broke itself up and uh, retained manufacturing, Western Electric, and got rid of the local phone companies. So what happened with force feedback? You mentioned that it just wasn't picked up by another researcher when you left, and it just kind of languished. Nobody at the labs picked it up. Uh, Nobody at Brooklyn Poly picked it up, and it just sat. Yeah. When I came back, I was a different person and had different interests. Mm -hmm. So it just sat there. I always thought that as a researcher, what you do is you make little steps and you publish you write it up so others would know of it. In my case, we have two articles in the Society for Information Display Journal. There's a patent. There's a doctoral dissertation. So all those things were placed there for others to see and pick up. And they did pick it up, but tactile interaction just languished behind even video. So, okay, actually, could you tell the story of the video phone? Well, next, when I came back, that was everybody was interested in that because the video phone, the picture phone, which started in the 60s or so, at one time consumed a tremendous amount of people at Bell Labs. I mean, they just thought this was the new way. When you're talking to somebody on the phone, you also could see them, two-way video. The problem was the other person needed to have one. You needed to have one. How are you going to get it going when everybody just had all sorts of problems? Also, people looking at each other when they talk to each other is a hotter medium. It's a hot medium. There's a lot of tension. You worry about how you look. There's a lot of issues with it. And back then, most people would like to see the person they were talking to, but they don't want to be seen themselves. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get it two way when you have that kind of an attitude. So it died. It was a colossal flop for the Bell system. AT&T couldn't admit the failure. So a fellow named Ed Goldstein, a vice president, gets the job of what to do about it. So he forms a group of people within AT&T who are looking for other possibilities for two-way visual communications. Mm -hmm. So one possibility was video teleconferencing with public rooms. Mm -hmm. So we looked at that. That wouldn't go anyplace either. That one flopped. People looked at video communications in a hospital. So we did a trial. Bethany Garfield Hospital in Chicago, Uh, the major use was looking at graphics, documents, not looking at each other, Mm -hmm. graphic. People want to check, is there a signature on this form? What was written down? So they're using it for those purposes. They would slip the graphics under the camera and do that. It was used in a criminal justice system for remote depositions. So attorneys didn't have to go to the jail to talk to somebody. Jails, I'm told, are very smelly, messy places. And if you can avoid going to it and do video type things, nowadays that's done routinely. Mm -hmm. But we were many ways premature. We also looked at video text, the idea of getting graphic information up on a display attached to a large database. We did a trial of that in Coral Gables, Florida, with the Knight Ritter newspaper people. Knight Ritter believed that they would have this giant computer and all the information people would put into their computer. One big, giant central computer. Sounds like the cloud, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And then we had this little terminal that would hook to your home TV 
So you could access that information, which would be organized in a tree fashion, not the Google fashion. We just type in a question, the tree. You know, so you had to go down the tree to get to what you wanted. Most people got lost in the tree and never made it to what they were trying to find. The people in the trial discovered they could send text messages to each other. Mm. And they used it for that. The users discovered what to do with it. Mm -hmm. They invented text messaging, what I called digi-text. People would say, I'm looking for a babysitter. Is there anybody out there who's a baby who wants to do that? We're two or three single guys or any single gals out there. These kinds of things. Are you the so-and-so who went to such and such a high school? So people were using it for that purpose. AT&T had no interest whatsoever in that area. Wow. You know, so that was back in the um, late 70s, early 80s when we were doing that trial. And that's when that discovery. But I was the advocate within AT&T marketing pushing on digitext and textual communication. The only people that AT&T was interested in it was the deaf because they couldn't use the phone. So they had to do some sort of text-based communication. But I saw it as a broader market, but nobody cared. I also realized that the Knight Ritter view of their giant computer being the depository for everybody's information wouldn't happen. I realized everybody would have their own computer and create their own information. The question then was, well, then you searching that distributed database world with thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions of those, how do you find anything? And I can remember postulating that issue to some research people at Bell Labs, and they just shrugged their shoulders, as opposed to these two graduates of, I think, Stanford, who did something about it, and, yeah. and that resulted in what's called Google today. Actually, another footnote about the video phone, you were involved in the design of the video phone that appeared in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Arthur C. Clarke, who is the author of the book and inventor of the idea of telecommunication satellites, too, was a good friend of John R. Pierce at Bell Labs, who was the executive director of research division I was working in. They were just good friends. John wrote science fiction, too, under a pseudonym. So they knew each other. Mm. And Kubrick obviously worked with Clark on the movie 2001. And because of that, when they were wandering around getting ideas, the Kubrick people came to Bell Labs, met with John, and John came up with the idea that there would be this orbiting space station and whoever was on it could use some sort of two-way video communications to talk, I think, back with his daughter on his birthday. So John wrote some ideas about that, an internal memorandum, John wrote something, then he took off on vacation and dropped the project on me. He says, Michael, here, you implement this and think about it. So I worked with the drafting department, and between the drafting department and I, we made a drawing of what this picture phone booth would look like. And I wrote a more detailed scenario of how the interaction would go, what would happen. I think the person had a credit card that they stuck in to pay for it. It was a flat screen, and we gave all that information to the Kubrick person, the people working on that. I can remember when finally I saw the movie, which was the slowest, boring, most movie I've ever seen. It moved at a snail's pace. Nothing would happen. Nothing. Nothing. Hour would go by and finally something explodes and somebody goes out. I mean, it was just, what on earth? And there, to my amazement, is the video phone booth 
exactly as we drew it, including the bell system seal on the outside of the booth. Yeah. I remember I get a call from some executive at AT AT&T saying, why is our bell system seal in that movie? Who allowed that? Because we're supposed to be only on communications within the United States. And now you have this showing us out in space. The person was furious. And I said, well, I supplied it. Well, who approved it? And I said, John Pierce said to do it. At which point then the person didn't know what to do. Because John was sort of a pseudo God by then within the company. You know, it's one of the few companies that directly gets credit in that movie. No, I know. And and the appearance of the seal is actually really, really cool because it ties it to present day. Yes. But that was not my job. Don't forget, that was not my job working at Bell Labs to do these things. These were these little side projects which would come along. Sure. These things popped up. I mean, three astronauts got trapped in a capsule and were consumed by the fire within that capsule. And there was a recording that was created. The issue now, NASA wanted to know who was speaking on that recording. So that recording made its way to Bell Labs, and we listened to it and tried to get an answer to that. That wasn't our job. But from a research perspective, that got me thinking, what happens to people's speech when they shout? What happens to their pitch, their fundamental frequency when you shout? Mm -hmm. So then I did a research project trying to determine that and discovered it almost quadruples, you know, almost goes up by a factor of three or four in pitch, which no one realized. So when you shout and your pitch goes up that high, it becomes hard to figure out by pitch who's speaking. Mm. The other issue was what happens to the shouted speech? How intelligible is it? Is it more intelligible, less intelligible? What, and what do you do about that? So sometimes these little side projects would end up stimulating again, curiosity and another research project. Yeah. It was fun. The Bell Labs research people, their philosophy was to hire the very best people. So working in the area I was working in, we had some people from India, the very best. We had Manford from Germany, one of the very best. A number from Hungary, the very best, which is the very best people. And they were very free of their time. If you were working on something and you ran into some math problem or some programming problem, and you didn't know what to do, you wander into somebody else's office and just start talking with them. And they would spend a couple hours trying to help you solve your problem. And you talked about how the recruitment went to find the very best. It was a very stringent process, and people had to run the gauntlet with the existing employees. If somebody wanted a job at Bell Laboratories, they would come in and they would present whatever their doctoral dissertation was or whatever they were working on. They would do a talk and that talk would be severely criticized and looked at. If they didn't do a good job, that was it. I mean, I can remember when I got to the university, our doctoral students were scared to death of the idea of standing up in front of the faculty and talking about their research and what they were doing. I was thinking, if they can't handle that, how are they ever going to get a job? You need to learn how to do that. And you need to accept the criticism and do better as a result of the criticism. At Bell Labs, if you did a talk, a presentation at a conference, that had to be officially approved by Bell Labs management before it would be allowed. And you would do a rehearsal of that talk in front of your colleagues. If you were restricted to 10 minutes, they had a clock. And at the end of 10 minutes, the buzzer went off. I mean, you learned how to stay on time and you learned how to do good 
slides, good view graphs, how to present things visually, and how to get this done. There was this commitment to excellence. It's throughout your memoirs. I mean, the way that internal communications are very formalized and process-oriented. Anybody working on a project, when you got it done, you wrote what was called a technical memorandum describing your project. Mm -hmm. And on the back of the cover sheet would be a distribution list. It would go to other departments, other areas, everything else. And that's how the information flowed within the company. Mm -hmm. It's just we assume that having the freedom to do what you want somehow clashes with a commitment to like really strong process and excellence, but it doesn't. Those processes do not exist there. Where? I mean, be unusual at a university oh, yeah. for you to have a problem and walk into a colleague's office and start talking to them. First thing they say, oh, we need to do a group proposal and get funding. So that be all talking about that rather than the actual subject matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, how frequently do you see colleagues who are going to go to a conference and give a talk do a rehearsal of it before their colleagues at the university mm-hmm. rare yeah how frequently do you see them distribute within their own department what they're working on and what they just wrote yeah it's just isolated competitive different environment yeah i mean very few businesses had the broad mission that at&t the bell system did back then or, or like a company like ibm back then their mission in essence was to assure the future of computing broadly it was a broad huge mission that they had back then nowadays most companies have their own little world that they're in and short-term profitability is of great concern and also public relations and publicity to convince wall street to overvalue their stock you know whatever it might be that they think they've just come up with something you've said is Publicity should be about what's discovered. I thought that that was an insightful comment because we think of publicity as some icing on the cake, but it should be the cake itself. It should be a representation of what was researched and discovered. You know, this year, artificial intelligence, AI, I, I just, I'm too old. I mean, I remember AI from the 60s. Mm-hmm. So we're, I mean, AI went nowhere back then, and now we're into it again today, and it now becomes a buzzword for this, no matter what you're doing, all right? I, I've invented a new hot dog. It was invented with the use of artificial intelligence. Right. As far as force feedback, why do you think we don't have that today? Because something you said that I had never thought of that I thought was very insightful is that the reason we don't have 3D input and force feedback, it's because the display technology always lagged behind. There was never a really practical 3D display technology, so you don't have 3D input then, and so then we're trapped in two dimensions. That's part of it, yes. Uh, Somebody was showing me some new displays somebody's coming up with. I think it's a lenticular screen. I don't know what the time frame is on old ideas coming around, but 3D movies, commercial 3D movies in the theater keep coming back. Yep. They come back, they hang around, big names get involved, they go into movies, people come in, they wear their glasses, they think how great it is, and then a year later, gone. And then wait another 10 years, comes back again. People go to the movies not because of the effect, they go because of the story. That's what they care about. Mm -hmm. The content is what it's all about. Yeah. Are there any technologies today that don't get enough credit or attention that you see a lot of potential in? Technology is fascinating to me. Earlier this year, I bought an Android phone. Mm -hmm. 
on Amazon. I forget the brand. It was only $60. That left me unbelievably staggered at that level of technology, sophistication, display, had two slots for SIM cards, an extra slot for extra memory, excellent video display, things of this variety. That left me stunned that that product could be sold for that small amount of money. Hmm. Well, I'm just looking over my notes here. We've talked a lot, a lot of this I think stuff. we've covered it all. Yeah. For listeners who are often you know, younger people, people mid-career, what would you leave them with? Would you want to say anything else to them? Well, the thing on technology is, which is what I was teaching for many years when I was at the Annenberg School at USC, is the very fundamental basics of technology. The basic things of modern day electronic technology do not change. That's what you need to know. What you don't need to know is 5G versus 2G versus 10G versus who knows what all. Let the engineers worry about that. Mm. But what you do need to know is the basic principles of wireless cellular technology, which is the idea of low power and a lot of signals, a lot of antennas. Mm -hmm. And you're sharing the spectrum by spatially distributing it so you can use the same frequencies again and again over different places. Those basic concepts are what's important. Right. What's the basic concept of amplification? Now, how does a vacuum tube work? And, and field effect transistors, in effect, are the solid state equivalent of a vacuum tube. You need to understand why is AC, alternating current, What's that compared to DC, direct current? What's the differences between those two? Why is one better than the other? The idea of multiplexing so that you can combine many signals and send them over the same medium. What's that about? How can you do that multiplexing? Those basic ideas are always going to be there. They won't change. In essence, to make an educated, literate person, mm -hmm. the same way you learn something about books, you learn something about music, you learn something about drama to make you an educated person. You're not an expert in this, but you're educated enough that you have a literacy in the terminology and a literacy in the concepts. That's what's essential. And if you have that, you're going to be less prone to hype. The same thing in economics. We're not going to make you an economist, but you need to know something about different economic theories. You know, the basic ideas of exchange and what they're about. You also should have a basic idea of law and basic legal principles, though not a lawyer, because policy and law are important things shaping the future. You should know something about consumer behavior and how to measure consumer behavior. We're not going to make you a social scientist and expert in doing that, but you'll have the literacy so that you in your job working with the experts can try to communicate with them. And if they're telling you nonsense, you know enough to realize that's nonsense. At Bell Labs, the people in management were the very best of the best. That's how they got promoted. Nowadays, I'm not sure what's happening in terms of who ends up in senior administrative posts in universities and industry. But you start to wonder, and government, you start to wonder. It reminds me of something you alluded to before, which is that the image or the publicity takes primacy over the substance a lot of times. How does somebody look? Yeah. Do they look at the job becomes the important thing. When I was at AT&T many years ago, that was already going on. Mm. How somebody looked, did they wear the right suit? Did they look the job? That was the one who got promoted. Not the one who knew the best, not the one who had the best knowledge. Yeah. And that bothered me. That was a little bit frightful to see, realizing we won't survive if we're doing that. You have a symphony orchestra. You want the very, very best musicians in that orchestra. You do. And how do you get the very best? 
You don't have them come in and do they look the right role? Is their violin nice and polished or something? Is their trumpet have the correct gleam to it? That's, that doesn't matter. What matters is their ability to perform, to feel the music. And how best can you determine that by getting rid of the visual? You don't want to see them. You want to listen only and judge by that and only by that. What's called blind auditioning. And that's the approach. Hard to imagine that 50 years ago, that's not the way it was done. It was Leopold Stokowski with his American Symphony Orchestra that was very innovative in hiring minorities, not because they were minorities, but because he was doing blind auditioning. He was paying attention to their sense and feel for the music, and that's what he wanted. Mm. That's what's important. We're not running a TV show where how you look matters. This is the real world. Yeah. And how you perform is what should matter. But the labs, you know, as I said before, it was a great place. I mean, you couldn't keep people away. The place was mobbed on Saturdays, Sundays. Wow. People just went in. It was, they had this project they were working on. They had to work on. They were at home. They had an idea, so they went in. Yeah. But the key thing was people. It always was people. The people dimension was the most important thing about Bell Labs. And I get older. You don't realize it when you're there. So when you get older and you look back, these incredible people. You just take talented, creative people, the best, and you can't control them. They just, they want to go wild doing their things. How do you create that? People says, well, to create that, we have to create a creative space. No, Bell Labs did not start with the creative space. It started with the creative people. Thank you very much for your time. Take care. Thank you. Keep in touch. And the Zoom worked okay. I, I give you credit for that and all. <laughs> anyway, all righty. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebernbaum.com. Beats by Ilya MC. Copyright 2020.